after all we've heard today, right? Over the next three to five years, do you believe that private credit will outperform public credit? If yes, why or why not? That is a great question and one which my colleague John Bach posed to our distinguished panel of private credit market participants in the following discussion. And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and I'd like to welcome you to episode number eight of season four of Streaming Income. All season long, we are diving deep into the factors shaping today's markets across asset classes like EM debt, high yield, private credit, real estate, and more. Remember, if you'd like to receive our latest insights as soon as they become available, you can follow us by searching Streaming Income on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. So today's episode of Streaming Income is a special one and one with a different format than usual. Today we are sharing a conversation from our recent Bearings 360 conference. Bearings 360 is an exclusive limited partner event designed to challenge conventional wisdom by bringing together leading LPs, CIOs, CEOs, and investment professionals for thought-provoking conversations on today's biggest issues. The topic of this conversation specifically is private credit. My colleague, John Bach, who has been a podcast guest himself, hosts this wide-ranging conversation on private credit, which dives deep into the opportunities and risks in the asset class from a variety of perspectives. The panel of guests sharing their perspectives is top-notch, including Jeffrey Berg, CIO of the South Carolina Retirement System, Tim Corbett, CIO from Bearings Parent Company, Mass Mutual, Daryl Kronk, CIO from Wells Fargo's Wealth and Investment Management Business, Stephen Nesbitt, CEO of investment advisory firm Cliffwater, and two of Bearings' own investment professionals, Ian Fowler, co-head of Global Private Finance, also a former uh, podcast guest himself, and Amika Onakwuga, who leads Bearings' global infrastructure debt and private placements businesses. One final note, there were a few charts used during the panel discussion. We will look to add a link to whichever podcast platform you're listening on to give you access to those charts. So enough talking from me. I will turn it over to John Bach for this timely and insightful discussion on private credit. Good afternoon for those in Europe. Good morning to those in the United States and Canada. It is a pleasure to host you for this hour for discussion on the private credit or direct lending marketplace. And so this distinguished panel will bring the audience or or wow the audience with their unbiased commentary, thoughtful perspectives, and ever-distinguished knowledge of both private credit and American cinema. And so I always think it's best for the panelists to introduce themselves. And so here's what we'll ask. We'll say, uh, guys, clearly there's such such an amount of brain power here. I'd love for you to introduce yourself, your firm. And if the private credit industry were a movie, which one would it be? And so we'll start with with Jeff, Tim, and Daryl. So let's go with Jeff first. All right. Uh, thanks for having me, John. Uh, I'm Jeff Berg. I'm the CIO at the South Carolina Retirement System Investment Commission. And if private credit were a movie, 
and I have to give credit for this to, to my head of private uh, debt, uh, I would have to say it would be the hangover. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Well, thanks for the start there, Jeff. I'm Tim Corbett. I'm the chief investment officer at Mass Mutual. Um, and Get Shorty is my movie. And, and I'm going to take a minute, but a little bit of background. That's John Travolta, Gene Hackman, and Danny DeVito. Uh, and it's a movie. It's really a crime comedy, but it's a movie about making movies and the joy about making movies. So there's, there's a lot of, uh, of uh, you know, stuff happening here. But the title of this session is Gold Rush. The first gold rush to California was the real gold rush in the, in the, eight, in the 18th century. I would argue the second gold rush has been the move to Hollywood and the move to make movies. Um, so, and, and obviously it's on my mind. I'm in Santa Monica. We just had the Oscars, so, so it's all top of mind. But, but the great thing about the movie is everybody has a movie idea. Everybody has that ambition. But only a few actually stand the test of time. Uh, with Academy Award recognitions, or obviously a lot of good movies, but there's some bombs in there as well. But I think uh, another big reason I really like it is, is Travolta is Chili Palmer. He's calm under pressure. Um, he handles adversity very well, and he turns it into an opportunity. And what this has to do with this panel, I guess we'll find out. <laughs> Fantastic, Tim. D Daryl? Good morning, everyone. I'm Daryl Cronk. Uh, I'm the Chief Investment Officer for our uh, Wells Fargo wealth and investment management businesses. Privileged to be here, known John for a lot of years, so it's an honor to be on the panel. So my movie would be uh, Hunger Games. So most of you will recall uh, Elizabeth Banks' uh, famous quote, may the odds be ever in your favor, right? The private credit industry is a hugely competitive arena where only the strong, smart, and savvy survive, right? And if they do so survive uh, in a fight to the death, then uh, the rewards are symbiotic with uh, high quality lenders and investors getting successful investments, skills-based lending and, and value add and interest rich investments. So that's my, that's my movie, John. That is fantastic. And we'll all have to remember that quote. And so, you know, now let's, we'll, let's bring up both Ian, Steve and Amika. And so uh, Ian, uh, your name, your firm, and uh, which movie best resembles private credit? Yeah, well, hello everyone. Uh, Ian Fowler from Bearings. Uh, I co-head our global private finance business, and I'm president of our uh, VDC. Uh, normally, what I would say is The Wizard of Oz, which is a fantasy musical, and, it, and I think it relates well to a lot of the a lot of managers in our space that uh, have this wizard behind the curtain, and it's a lot more straightforward, our business, than some people make it uh, seem to be. But I think right now, just uh, post-COVID, I'm going to go with Weekend at Bernie's. I think there's... I think there's uh, there's some bodies that are being moved around right now, and uh, and we'll we'll find out which one's alive and which one's dead. <laughs> That's fantastic, Steve. Uh, thanks, John, and thanks for having me. So, uh, I'm CEO of Cliffwater, a research firm and, and consulting firm focused on, on private debt. Um, my movie is I think this is easy. It's a Wonderful Life, and John, John, you're George Bailey. And we're operating the bearing savings and loan. And, and there are a lot of potters out there, and, and not just one. And uh, you keep the potters away from the good guys. And you play the long game, the potters play the short game. Fantastic, fantastic. And Amika. Good morning, everyone. And uh, thanks for uh, inviting me, uh, John. Uh, 
Amemeke Anukwa, and from Bearings, responsible for both the private placement business and the global infrastructure debt business. John, with respect to the movie, I, you know, not being a movie guy myself, I, I, it was difficult for me to come up with something, but clearly I thought more so I'm more of a TV guy. And when I think about a private uh, uh, placement market, I, what came to mind was something uh, 60 Minutes, which is something that has been a consistent, you know, ratings getter over the years. And that's sort of how I view the market where every year, you know, the plot line may change, but it's a consistent, you know, winner for participants in it. Amika, that's fantastic. And so, you know, if, if uh, my name's Jonathan Bach, and so I work on the BDCs uh, here at Bearings. And so if I was going to pick a movie, I'd probably say if the private credit movie, it's going to be most like uh, one of my favorites from the 80s, uh, Twins. Right. The only difference is we've got to figure out which managers are Arnold Schwarzenegger and which ones are Danny DeVito. Right. And so we really we'll really try to determine we'll try to determine that. And so let's pull up our first slide here for a discussion on the markets. And and uh, and Steve, you'll recognize quite, quite a bit. There's a lot of your uh, your index and a lot of the work that you've done in private credit here. Right. But it, it's really a, 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 a series or a play broken into four four acts. We can remember the first quarter and just the absolute terror and fear. Clearly, you can see the declines, right? And then you move into the second quarter, right? And you look over to the right, and you can see that terror and fear led to drawdowns. This was exactly at the point where folks that had not managed their balance sheet appropriately found themselves out of money, out of liquidity, and with some and with some difficulty in the private credit space. But but fear not, right? The invisible hand comes and allows and cures many ails. And so if you go to the next slide there, Jeff, what we'll see here is that you know, defaults as it relates to the BDCs did come in. Right as fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus came uh, came alongside, and that led arguably to one of the biggest booms of pent up demand in private credit that we've seen in in quite a very very long time. And so you you saw what was a a you know a cycle that you would assume for default and recession to be very long compressed into four short quarters. And so I guess the question is to to the institutional investors, and we'll do Jeff and Tim here is. Was this, you know, when you see these charts and you think back to sitting in the seats as you were allocating capital, do these charts resonate with you? And and throughout that that moment, as it relates to your alts exposure, private credit exposure, which which item here, which theme you see develop, kind of really, uh, you know, grabbed you or, or surprised you the most? Uh, John, they absolutely resonate with me, um, and they resonate resonate with me for what I think are hopefully pretty obvious reasons. Uh, first half of the year, I saw parts of our portfolio take some pretty big marks that uh, caused us to have to bite down on the mouthpiece. Um, and then just reverse in the second half, like everything had gotten back to normal. Uh, and and all, all said, when the dust settled, we really didn't see a lot of defaults in our book. Um, you know, I think you said something that's pretty important. There was a window of time in which lenders could get a lot of really exciting deals done. But what surprised me was that this window just didn't last very long. Um, you know, to me, it was the actions of the Fed and the Treasury that had a similar effect in the U.S. Uh, kind of credit landscape as Draghi's whatever-it-takes declaration back in, what, what was it, 2012? Uh, and these actions just put a floor in for a lot of the credit complex. 
Yeah. So last year was, uh, I mean, every quarter felt like its own year. It was just a, it was just a phenomenal year. I mean, the, the late first quarter, second quarter was really all hands on deck. And it was playing defense, trying to understand where the potential exposures and issues were going to be, how, how this could play out. And the dispersion of outcomes was so wide, you know, at, at that point in time with, with the information we had or that, that we didn't have. Uh, but unfortunately, we were in a position where we, we were very liquid, so we were able to play a little bit of offense as well. But in this market, it was more about providing liquidity to those who needed it um, and, and taking advantage of it uh, that, that way. The, the, the third quarter was really, uh, I think, the quarter where the probably surprised me the most in, in the sense that I don't we didn't fully appreciate the, the power of the Federal Reserve's programs and the power of the fiscal stimulus and really bridging the chasm, the economic you know, chasm that, that, that we had there. So, uh, and then we, and then we really saw that materialize in the fourth quarter with a phenomenal amount of deal flow and really attractive terms as a lot of sponsors were trying to get stuff done by year end. Uh, so the, uh, on both, uh, you know, the investment grade and, and, and the high yield side. So there was a great opportunity to provide liquidity to the market and, uh, and re-risk the portfolio, uh, in, you know, in, in some sense. That, that makes total sense. If we could bring up Amika and uh, Ian, because th- this this gives a good question from a GP perspective, which clearly, as Tim and Jeff outlined, it was an extremely active year, and each had kind of its own uh, its own uniqueness as it relates to, to to the quarter. And so I know I know bearings we've lent you know for a very very long time over multiple cycles, and the question is you know Ian and Amika is where were some of the mistakes made? Right from a from a lending and a direct lending perspective, both IG or high yield, and then more importantly now, all right, folks made some mistakes. Have they been corrected or not? And Ian, let's start with you. Well, I mean, look, first you're, you're absolutely correct. I mean, it was a uh, historic year. I, I mean, from a origination perspective, uh, 2020 was was huge. Uh, no one would ever have guessed that the fourth quarter. Uh, was so robust. And in fact, in 30 years, I, I've never seen so many high quality assets come to the market at, at the same same time. Um, and, and secondly, I think from a from a performance standpoint, it was a, it was an odd uh, dislocation that occurred because, yeah, it was devastating initially as supply and demand destruction occurred. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it was what did your portfolio consist of in terms of industry, where did you have exposure, and which businesses were deemed essential or not. And that's basically how you either performed or didn't perform. And, and so, you know, for us, for example, we, we avoid uh, uh, consumer-facing businesses like gyms and retails and restaurants and things like that. So that worked out well. But the mistakes that were made because of all of all the, uh, the hit to the, to the economy in these industries is one, I think there was a lot of mismanagement of the right side of the balance sheet. Uh, Either managers did not have sufficient uh, flexibility or diversification in terms of their capital to maneuver during this uh, dislocation, or because of the portfolio issues that I described, uh, they had to shore up their their balance sheet and raise dilutive capital. Um, And so we saw that from, from one perspective. And then the other perspective that we saw was that some managers just didn't have enough capital in reserves to fund uh, revolvers. Uh, and so that lack of capital to fund resolvers or incrementals uh, required them to, fu- to find rescue financing. Uh, so for those managers, they lost market share. 
for the guys that had to raise dilutive capital, obviously unhappy in investors. And to answer your question, John, did they learn a lesson? Well, I think the jury's still out on that because fortunately for the market, the recovery was relatively quick. Rising tide floats all boats. And I don't think we'll see uh, which lenders actually learn their lesson until we have uh, the next dislocation, which is going to, you know, if it's like a normal dislocation, it's going to be longer and more protracted. That, that makes complete sense. And, uh, you know, Amika, do you kind of see it a similar way? Because clearly the stress occurred and in the private placements, I mean, granted, much larger issuers at investment grade. But where did you see some of the mistakes getting made? So, I, again, following in with uh, what Ian said, we saw all of the things that you, you talked about. But, you know, stepping back, when I think about our portfolio, given, uh, John, what you just mentioned, because we tend to play in investment grade land, the biggest you know, pressure point for our clients tend to be more of the downgrade risk. And we saw that happen initially when, when all of that, those actions were happening in, in, I say, March, April, May timeframe, you know, so we saw that flood of downgrade. So we spent the early part just making sure that we had uh, an angle or a handle on, on which of the uh, uh, portfolio companies were more likely to get downgraded so that we'll be able to let our clients know and that they can accordingly plan for their capital uh, uh, implications, you know. So we saw that, you know, and when I think about, and, and with the Fed action, which you mentioned, that also helped stabilize the market in the second half and that flood of downgrade risk that we saw has sort of uh, uh, ebbed significantly. Uh, in terms of mistake, it, it's, it goes back to the old cliche. It, it's, it's, you have to look at those times as opportunity to buy. And I think most people didn't look at it as an opportunity to go in and, and pick up some great names that you would have wanted to own, you know, in January and February, but were just too expensive to buy. So that mistake was made. And also the timing, and then we talked about how quickly, you know, I think Tim talked about it felt like a year in every quarter. The Fed action, the market snapped back and, and people who made the mistake of thinking, hey, I want to time it, you couldn't do it, you know, and just not having that discipline to say, hey, you know, uh, I'm just going to buy these great names, you know. Correction, uh, again, it, it's, it's one of those things like Ian said, the only time will tell, but going forward, it's good to have from, which is something I do, which is have a list of names that you really want to own so that when those market opportunities come in, you're not scrambling and you are more playing offense. And, and I cannot discount the, the need for an experienced staff, you know, so people who have gone through that before. That's a great point, right? Clearly, those that have the, uh, you know, the seat under you, underneath you could be used as a flotation device plan, uh, clearly panned out. Uh, but, but granted, while everyone talks that ability, either they haven't staffed for it or don't have the capital for it, and clearly that ended up uh, driving some, uh, some issues, particularly as, as the normal distribution, there were some folks on the tails that had some problems. Now, pulling up a slide here, you know, Steve, this is, uh, this is data that comes from your proprietary index on direct lending, Cliffwater Direct uh, Lending Index, and just want to outline a few points. Points is that as a class, 
right? The direct, direct lending industry actually performed uh, quite well. And so, you know, you break your uh, you break your index into a couple forms of return. Namely, you've got your income, right? And then plus you have your unrealized gains and losses and realized gains and losses. And so we can go to the next slide. And clearly you can see here that over time, right, particularly relative to expectation, direct lending did better than many folks would have expected. Now, the question is, you know, was that level of outperformance, right? What what was technically driving it? Was it just the fact that the Fed came in and saved the day, right? And so we've got a lot of uh, uh, Bernies walking around. Or was there something a bit more systemic, Steve, when you start to think about the outperformance of direct lending today versus many cycles you've seen in the past? Well, um, thanks, John. So uh, I analogize, really, for, as the private debt industry has grown over the last 10 years, since the great financial crisis, there's been a, a lot of attention to, okay, I see the yield, but if things go bad, how bad will the, the, the direct lending market uh, be? So in other words, I think everybody was looking over the last five years for another stress test and, and we got it. It's a little different from what people thought it was, but I think uh, basically as, a, as an asset class, uh, uh, direct uh, private debt performed as expected and direct lending performed as, uh, as expected. Basically, I look at this, go back to 2008. Uh, uh, you may have been in high school back then, John, but uh, uh, in 2008, we consider that a, a three sigma event. You know, if you look at the stock market down, uh, down 50, uh, 50%. And basically, uh, uh, direct lending, private debt, the uh, realized losses, cumulative, cumulative realized losses were about 10%. So I tell clients, hey, three sigma event, expect to, expect to lose a uh, one year's uh, worth of interest. Fast forward, uh, uh, ten, uh, fast forward uh, uh, 12 years, uh, we have this uh, uh, crisis of a, of a different uh, nature, but basically from a capital market point of view, it was a 1.5 sigma event if you look at uh, the stock market. So basically, we would ex expect uh, a proportionate uh, losses of about five percent. Already, we're seeing three and a half. Generally, real realized losses happen with a lag. I expect uh, you know through next year, probably cumulative losses will be uh, will turn out to be about uh, five percent. And and I think um, you know unless you were over levered uh, or or had some sector concentration. Uh, uh, you know, oil and gas, whatever, uh, you fared uh, very well. So I think um, uh, new allocations are coming into this asset class primarily because of uh, its performance last year. That makes complete sense. And Daryl, you know, when we start to think of the performance of, of the underlying private class uh, and, and clearly our great respect for, for you and, and the, the friends at Wells Fargo, and I know you, you, you work it across an extremely large uh, system with, uh, with best in class uh, investors. Did the alternative investment, you know, ecosystem in private credit, did it meet your expectations from a wealth perspective? And do you see continued uptake? Yeah, it's a great question, uh, John. So I, I think it did largely. I mean, as uh, many of the panelists documented, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty and fear. The good thing about alternative investments is because of the brevity of that correction, it kept them invested, right? It kept them from making bad decisions at the wrong period of time. Um, I, I would argue, you know, the, the events of March, April last year were more of a liquidity crisis that could have evolved into a solvency crisis, but didn't because of 
And I would, I would say because of the visible hand of the Fed, not the invisible hand of the markets, right? The visible hand coming with, you know, the, the Fed coming with their uh, emergency section 13.3 powers, right, to push into that. I would just say, you know, when we look back and kind of um, do a postmortem on 2020, um, you know, if you take leveraged loans, for example, um, had a had a really strong year. You know, most of our managers, three to six, three to seven percent. Um, you ended up seeing um, this was, I think, the 17, 17 out of the last 20 years where they have had um, uh, positive returns. Um, the CLO market, um, same type of thing. When you look at what's happened in CLOs, your cash flow returns were double digits, 10th consecutive year of double digit returns in the CLO market, um, 10th straight double digit cash flow returns. Uh, I think most uh, European CLOs finished the year about 13.2, um, US CLOs about 11.3 on the cash flow side of things. So I think they weathered the storm really well. Now, I take the point that I think many of the panelists made that in the next um, type of cycle, John, where it's a more protracted, longer traditional credit cycle and not maybe a, a heart-stopping liquidity crisis. It could be a different story, but um, so far clients have been very happy with where they've ha been positioned in the private credit markets. And, th and that makes sense, the way kind of you uh, disaggregate or disintermediated the types of, of, of crises that we were in. Clearly, this one is, is much different. And so, you know, Jeff, I mean, kind of hearkening back as, as, uh, as Daryl outlined the, the uh, you know, the, the, the upside uh, or the positive performance, uh, perhaps exceeding expectations, uh, getting back to the, the, the Danny DeVito versus Arnold Schwarzenegger in the movie Twins, uh, what would you say were the winning attributes of a direct lender? That, that that allowed them to succeed in 2020 if you had to pick one or two sure um I, i'm gonna agree with what's already been said on this uh ian said it uh amika said it uh, uh daryl just said it um the most important attribute is discipline and and i mean discipline both in terms of underwriting uh and discipline in terms of portfolio construction i i don't like being in a situation in which I need the government to take an action to keep me upright. Uh, we, when we look at the asset class, uh, we really want to minimize our loss rate during hard times. We think that's the key to generating good returns. If we do that well, our bad times aren't going to be nightmares. And if you have disciplined portfolio construction, then during a crisis, actually your portfolio isn't on fire. So you can shift your focus to playing offense. Appreciate that. And, and you know, you, you brought up discipline and you also brought up diversification and scale. And so, you know, it's interesting. And, you know, Amika, we, we hear words like scale and diversification, right? And clearly everyone wants to, wants to talk about that they have it, but how it's implemented and whether it's honestly used for the betterment of the NLP or investors can be, uh, uh, can be spurious because at some point, you know, if you grow rapidly beyond one opportunity set or, or say you have scale, but it's in the wrong area, you end up with, uh, with some uh, a negative tail events. And so, you know, Amika, I just, I'd ask you, because you, you run such a, a large business, what would scale and diversification effectively mean to you? Well, John, scale, don't get me wrong, scale is important. You know, it just allows you to be able to uh, uh, solve a client need of capital. So scale is important. But what I'll say is more 
equally important, if not more important than scale, is having flexible capital. Because that is really what allows you now to telemake that to what the client is looking for. And the ability to come to a client with, you know, whether they want to do fixed rate or floating rate, you know, long maturity, short maturity, bank, you know, bond hybrid, that's more important. That's how I look at scale, the ability to have capital that allows you to do all of those things. The other, to me, big up, also big piece is the ability to originate your own deals, you know, and having that ability couple it with the flexible capital, you know, that's when scale really starts to mean something and starts to mean something more profitable. Because in this market, as you can tell, you can have scale. And if you're all buying from the broadly syndicated market, it just it just feels like it's a race to the bottom in terms of, you know, uh, adding alpha. You know, Amika, you bring up a, a, an excellent point. And that, that we can actually bring up the next slide here is that in some instances, what we find in a space like this one in competitive dynamic is that everyone competes on the same levels. Meaning what basically happens is they use their size and scale to compete and then eventually look like and become each other, right? And so what we often like to think about is, is scale doesn't just beget scale to get bigger because of the next guy. Scale should be used to design to, to innovate and create uh, option optionality for your investors or in, in many circumstances, uh, the end users of, of that product. And so here, here's a good example of way we kind of think of scale. Now, this is broken out. You'll just see relative al value classes here. Uh, you can see that the, the top one is triple B that got cut off. The bottom would be double B. And then if you flip the page here to the next slide, you can see, you know, single B spreads. And so what it shows is, is there's a, there's always going to be a, a, level of opportunity that it can exist in certain markets at certain credit profiles at certain times. But if you're monochromatic in your focus and everything is just one color, you lose the benefit of that diversity, right? And so what we start to find work very hard is, is that scale is designed to create innovative solutions as opposed to just look like our next best uh, competitor. And so you, you fast forward and if you look from a, a slide from our most recent uh, uh, BDC, uh, uh, BDC uh, conference, it's called just the next slide here. You can just see we talk about illiquidity premium. And where we focus on illiquidity, illiquidity and complexity premium can be found a number of different places. And so it can, but but the question really is, is how sustainable is that illiquidity premium? And, and is it in this environment uh, attractive? And so, you know, Tim, if you're looking at things on a relative value basis, right, do you feel the illiquidity premium that investors are getting today, does that justify, right, today adding this asset class uh, relative to liquid securities that that might that clearly do not have that illiquidity premium, and how do you balance that? Well, the short answer, John, is yes. Um, it, it, it does it, it does justify. It. Let me um, maybe ex explain it this way. I'll, I'll, let's go back to another movie, right? Back to the back to the future. Um, so yeah, so. You know, we're back to where we were essentially the begin in 2019, the beginning of 2020. Spreads are incredibly tight. Uh, rates are, are low. Um, you know, the um, uh, not not even back where they were in terms of outright yields. So it, basically, anything with a QSIP uh, is fair value at best because that's where all the money is. Uh, all the money from the fiscal stimulus, and the Federal Reserve Reserve is going. So, so, so with that sort of backdrop, I, I, I would tell you liquidity is overrated. 
Uh, it's overrated until you need it. <laughs> so, uh, and, and understanding you never want to be in a position where you need it. <laughs> you always want to be in a position where you have it. So that means very strong asset liability management discipline um, uh, uh, and, and stress testing of, of your portfolio uh, you know, for, for that purpose. Uh, I would argue, yeah, can you add value in the liquid markets from from actively trading? Um, it, you know, you can. It's difficult. It's hard to do it consistently over time. Can you add value from uh, mitigating risk in, in credits that you have from selling it? Yes, sure. Uh, but the uh, but I would rather in this market uh, take take a take my views here in the portfolio with deep credit work, broad diversification, earn that illiquidity premium and earn that origination origination premium. Uh, and then I guess the final point I would make, you know what, in a, in a crisis, nothing is liquid. And so even these public corporate securities, they're not, they're not liquid in a crisis. Uh, but, but, uh, and conversely, I would tell you what the, uh, that, uh, you know, investment grade, private placements, infrastructure loans, uh, middle market loans and, and direct middle market lending. And they're, they're actually liquid. We're active in the secondary markets um, in, in, in those sectors. So, um, so it, it is a balancing act, um, but uh, I, I definitely prefer taking advantage of the illiquidity premium uh, and, the, and the underwriting that comes with that wherever, wherever we can. So that illiquidity and or origination premium, Tim, that you outlined, that has a great corollary to how we think about uh, private credit space and its growth in a number of, of different channels. And clearly, Daryl, uh, private credit seen a significant amount of growth as it relates to individual investors, uh, particularly across uh, across the landscape. And so how do you look to balance the liquidity dynamic with the pickup that you're going to get in yield and return that Tim outlined? Well, it, I think Tim's exactly right. It it is um, it is there, and it's there in in um, scale that we haven't seen in a while. Let me take that argument from just a little bit of a different angle um, because I think it's important for our audience to understand this. So, so if you look at the public fixed income markets today, and you just simply take the ten year Treasury at one sixty four this morning, and you compare it to ten year forward break evens or the swap market, you've got a negative real yield of eighty basis points today, right? In an economy that's normalizing, that has massive fiscal stimulus thrown at it, and a Fed that wants inflation to overshoot as that eco economy normalizes, um, there's no doubt that rates should be higher than they are today on these absurdly low implied real rates. Um, and it's what the Fed wants, and they're not going to try and stop it, quite frankly. You can, you can listen to their commentary. Just to put that in perspective, post-global financial crisis, right after the GFC, Real rates were 50, positive 50 basis points. Today, they're negative 80 basis points, right? So, and, and post-GFC, we had dormant housing, we had low savings, we had much higher household debt to GDP than we do today. So the reality is the curve should be steeper than it is today. You're not getting compensated in the public debt markets like you are in the private debt markets. So it makes the private debt market exceedingly attractive when yet today, I would argue that the the public debt market isn't pricing in what is expected for inflation, a bear steepener, or where real rates should should frankly be today. That's a that's a very good point. And and when we start to think kind of that comparison on a deal level, Ian. So you know. There was a general pickup as it relates to illiquidity premium, but to be fair, I know that we, and particularly yourself, are, are competing directly on, uh, you know, with others on on basically investing according to that illiquidity premium. And do you anticipate 
the, uh, the, the, the competition effectively to, to continually compress that uh, given the amount of, of, of money coming in? Or do you think that there is an effective level of sustainable floor uh, that exists? Because we, we discuss as if it's, if it's long-term and permanent, but clearly more capital comes and pushes that spread down and can eliminate that type of opportunity. Yeah, so let, let me bring up a, a couple points. One, um, and this is your theme of monochromatic, um, I, I think for investors just looking at the asset class and, and looking at managers, the, the discipline, to Jeff's point when you talk about discipline, I think is really important in terms of how you price and structure deals. The reality is, and, and sometimes I feel like I'm the history professor because I've been doing this for so long, um, we all are deal guys. We love doing deals. We grew up doing deals. But the reality is this market has really opened up to institutional investors really in the last uh, 10 to 15 years. And, and so the question as you look at uh, direct lenders, um, yeah, they love doing deals, but are they also relative value investors? I mean, you, you can't make the argument that a $10 million EBITDA business deserves the same structure and price as a $75 million business. And, and so while we all have to compete, you have to be disciplined. And so like, for example, every deal that we run through our investment committee, we're always looking at, at comps in the liquid market. Um, and, and yeah, we, you know, we're targeting, and I think a reasonable target for an illiquidity premium is two to 300 basis points. Um, and you will, depending on the quality of the credit, you might go lower to 200 versus 300. So it can be a, a diversified and, and mixed bag. But at the end of the day, there has to be that, that premium. Um, and I think we all focus just on the return. And, and I think uh, all of us should be looking and taking a step further and actually looking at the, the risk uh, in, in the investment that you're making because all, all deals are not created equal. So... We actually, you know, focus on, in addition to the illiquidity pro, uh, premium, we, we focus on looking at what is that spread for turn of leverage that, that, you're, that you're generating over the liquid market. Um, and so you can look at it from an asset class to asset class analysis and comparison. You can also look at it from a manager to manager comparison. Um, and, and so I think that's an important analysis that all investors should be doing. And to answer your question regarding um, you know, whether lenders are going to be rational in, in a market. Um, I mean, look, the reality is, and, and we're, you know, we're starting to see that right now, spreads are compressing. Uh, but I do believe there is a floor. Uh, and there is a floor because managers have to deal with cost of leverage uh, that they're utilizing. And also, they're very much focused on performance fees. Um, and so I, I think at a certain point, you know, th those spreads are going to hit that floor and you're going to have other things that are going to be the giveaway, right? It's going to be leverage. It's going to be degradation of structural protection that, that they uh, give away to compete. Um, and the last thing I'll say is that as a manager in this space, to the extent you're not skimming fees and to the extent that you have a fair fee structure, it actually allows you to maneuver with lower spreads and still generate the target return that investors are looking for and still generate performance fees. 
that that level of alignment Ian often gets unheated and and can people can look past that pretty quick that's a that's an excellent point and to your point on rationality I'll steal Tim uh, uh, Tim's reference clearly we need to find which ones are going to be rational actors like Marty McFly versus Biff Tannen right and so clearly uh, that that will that that over time will pan out and we will see you know who the who the rational actors are and a lot of that can come in terms of of where folks invest and let's pull up the next slide here so you know Steve this is a this is a slide that 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 you know, we we greatly respect because it outlines the view of private credit. Private credit can't be solely one thing, i.e., lending to a middle market business. Private credit has a lot of different attributes, and I know in your work and your teams, you've been very innovative across a number of different uh, verticals here. And so we'll we'll refer to this as Steve's wheel. And so, Steve, when you when you see the growth of the private marketplace, and clearly we talk a lot about corporate direct lending, what are some of the other enhanced income? available opportunities that you're attacking today, right? And do you see room for growth in those categories that you have outlined here? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> thank you, John. So let me just back up a, uh, a second and talk about portfolio construction. So I put this wheel together because over the last five years, I've traveled around, met with many institutional investors, and have asked them, hey, how are you investing in private private debt? And I get... I. Uh, rarely get the same answer. I, some view private debt as distressed. Uh, some view it as litigation finance. Some view it as direct lending, th this and that. So there, there seems to be, unlike private equity and other traditional asset classes, in terms of portfolio uh, construction, there, never, there doesn't seem to be uh, any consensus here. And, and it's our opinion at, uh, at Cliffwater that Unlike other asset, obviously manager selection is, is important, GP selection, but ha uh, having a defined or disciplined portfolio construction uh, is, is very important for, uh, to achieve a long-term uh, outcome, uh, favorable outcome. So basically we divide the world into two hemispheres, that right-hand hemisphere is direct lending, that uh, our allocations there uh, probably represent between 50% up to 75% uh, of our total private debt allocation. The left-hand uh, hemisphere uh, is generally uh, uh, higher return, higher yield, but also higher higher risk uh, opportunities. And and there's a lot uh, a lot in there. I want to I want to say that uh, manager selection, GP selection, is important for the entire wheel. But there's a lot more beta in the right hemisphere and a lot more alpha in the left-hand uh, uh, hem hemisphere. So, you know, from our point of view, we're, we're in that left-hand hemisphere, we're looking at, uh, it's the uh, focus on GP. So uh, we do a lot in royalties, uh, uh, for example, but it's really GP selection. If we can't find a good good manager, we're not going to do it just because it's it ex, uh, uh, it exists. Uh, uh, for example, marketplace lending, a lot of the consumer stuff we've stayed we've stayed away from because we we've never felt comfortable that we have a, G, a GP who's really uh, good and well tested uh, in in uh, that area. Litigation finance, uh, we like that uh, uh, space as uh, as well. Uh, 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 anyway, I could go on and on, but my my point is simply this: um, uh, when putting a portfolio together, uh, basically we try we try to balance uh, the core direct lending, 
against the opportunistic left-hand hemisphere. And basically, uh, uh, our recommendation is that, it's, uh, that asset owners allocate between those two hemispheres, depending upon uh, the level of risk they want to take and their comfort at selecting, uh, selecting GPs. That also gets to kind of a core belief that either it's competition by imitation, right, doing the same thing as everybody else, or competition slash scale driving innovation, right? And so cl clearly, it's 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 a point that I know kind of gets uh, you know gets to a center of an LP debate. And so Jeff, when you think of some of the enhanced opportunities, I guess the question would be, how do you like to prosecute those? That's a great question, uh, and and we do it two ways. Uh, we'll we'll look at individual strategies and take sort of a rifle shot approach. But what we what we really like is to work with firms that have deep expertise in several of these areas. Uh, you know where they're anchored in kind of traditional corporate direct lending, but they do have real you know deep expertise. They're they're not they're not pilgrims in those areas. They they're are, they know what they're doing and they have long, deep experience. Uh, so what's interesting, though, is there are firms that have this expertise but don't really know how to deliver it uh, to clients the way that clients want it. Uh, and, and when that's the case, we can usually see it because they bring us a litigation fund one year. The next year, they bring us the asset back lending fund and then the royalty fund the year after that. Uh, you know they're not they're not bringing us a solution that works for us. Uh, so I prefer the solution which I can tell a manager, hey, look, I I trust that you have this skill to look across this landscape, and I actually want you to have some flexibility to make that asset allocation decision, and we're going to structure the compensation so we have good alignment. And by giving the manager that authority, we know that. In, in last year is a great example that when the opportunity is there and it's not there for very long, we know that we have the ability to move some capital very quickly. Uh, and again, John, that's what we did last last year in our joint venture. Um, and if I decide I want to deploy incremental capital into one of those ideas, I, I can absolutely do that. And I can do that with the same partner, But but that's there's going to be a diligence process around that, that so that therefore it's going to move a bit more slowly. So I hope I hope that's give you a good flavor. It does, because because I mean, uh, structured by you know folks with with deep expertise can particularly in some of those areas, but but maintaining a core uh, a, a core hub and spoke approach can be very very uh, advantageous, right? Particularly if it's self uh, self designed, and so that actually kind of brings a question now of where it's headed, right? And so we'll bring up this next slide here showing capital flows into the space. And as you know, there's a material amount of fund inflows right, that is that is occurring, right, as a result of the fact that there there may be a view on inflation that over time, you know, there's the potential for rates to 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 move in a different direction, and this is driving as more capital flows into the liquid credit space, the expectation that there will be a level of repayment and or competition uh, that exists, and particularly in Steve's kind of core. Uh, direct lending, uh, uh, direct lending allocation. And so, you know, if you look over at the next slide, you can. 
can also see that, you know, as the CLO market continues to rally, right, and spreads continue to tighten as well as is private risk assets, right, continue to compress as it relates to spread, uh, you know, this is creating a, a competitive environment. And so, you know, what I'd ask, you know, Amika, as you start to see, you know, spreading uh, spread pressures occur, right, number one, I'm, we know you're feeling the pressure, right? We all are. But the question is, how are you trying to navigate this environment in specific? Good question, John. And again, you're right. We're feeling the pressure, no question about it. And uh, the good thing is with the private placement market, there's a lag in terms of that pressure between, you know, what the public uh, uh, spreads out versus what we find in the private market. And that that lag means that we're still finding, you know, on the broadly syndicated uh, uh, private placement market, we're still finding good relative value. You know, how long that lasts, you know, it's my guess. My sense is, again, things are being oversubscribed and, and there's pressure on there. I go back to the point I made before, you know, you really navigate this by the ability to, again, create your own deals to originate and be that solution provider. And I go back to that, the point I made, having that flexible capital and the ability to originate our own deals and become more of a solution provider. And that's the only way you go to an alpha in this market, because Again, people, you have to differentiate yourself with something. And that for us is the way to do it. it it's originating our own deals and picking our spots. When I look at this this year, you know, uh, a fair and increasing amount of the volumes that we've done this year, we're, we're in the middle of a very good year, it has to do with stuff that we have taken away from that broadly syndicated market and, and sort of originated and clubbed up. So it's the only way when I think about going forward, given where spreads are. We are fast coming to a point where you go from what I think Ian mentioned before, you know, we're a relative value player, but you get to a point where you're now dealing with absolute value. And, and we, 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 I could see us getting there where you get to a point where we can't go further down. Right, it, you know, this actually gets to a point that I, I know Tim, you know, Tim had made as it relates to the illiquidity premium, and and th th this is this is the uh, illiquidity premium rather, and this is that opportunity. And so, you know, Tim, it's always important whenever you have the you, you know the mic uh, for you and Daryl, I want to start with you, is to is as returns get compressed and your your managers uh, look to deploy capital in different areas that they heed your advice, right? Because oftentimes managers are more than happy to do one thing that, that they think is right, but but not necessarily listen to the end uh, user of the product, right? Because, uh, you know, such is the nature of principal and agent. And so I guess the, the question is, what advice would you, Tim, uh, give the the credit managers that are that are writing you know uh, tickets uh, for for your book illiquidity premium uh, generators direct originators what advice would you give them in this environment and then we'll ask the same question to Daryl hey, hey look we we have to recognize we're all in this environment of, of low yields and and tight spreads we've been in it we're in it we are likely to be in it for an extended period of time so and that's an environment that's incredibly painful for liability matching portfolios like insurance, life insurance companies and pension plans, uh, and for retirees and others who need to build and, and, and have yield uh, in, in their portfolios. So uh, the, the inclination to reach for yield 
uh, is really strong. Uh, and Amika and I talk about this all the time. Don't reach for yield. Uh, you know, the, uh, um, the compensation for any problems that you get is very, is very low, if, if any. Uh, compensate uh, yourself with better structure uh, you know, the, keep your covenants, keep your structural protections, keep your leverage uh, ratios in, in sight, give up and give up yield, um, you know, the, in, in that scenario. So um, uh, my preference in, is to rely, again, on the deep sort of underwriting um, and, and sound credit underwriting and rely on diversification uh, in, in this environment. That's fantastic. And Daryl, what, what advice would you be providing your private credit managers? So I would say three things here, just in the interest of brevity, John. So one is we're hyper-focused to ensure like that there isn't style drift and the risk management or weakness that happens around that. It often happens throughout cycles. And so we want our managers to be pure, stay pure. Uh, the analogy is a color palette, right? We want our colors pure, right? So that doesn't mean, um, which transitions me in the second point, doesn't mean that they shouldn't be diversified, right? Um, because diversification is key. I would say what we often see sometimes is the managers suffer from multiple target syndrome, kind of leading to to a focus on what's comfortable versus what's best, right? And that tends to happen in what's worked during the last quarter and not what's going to work going forward. And then maybe the third point, and this is an exceedingly important point, I think, in the private uh, credit arena and also the BDC market, but it's alignment, and it's been talked about here before, but it's alignment of interest from the GPs and the LPs is really important. Um, I think Ian said it, you know, uh, you have when liquidity rarely matters, but when it does, it's all that matters. And we all know, having been in this industry for many years, the worst loans are made at the best times, right? And so without that alignment uh, around GP and LP uh, uh, and, and making sure that structure is tight, um, then we feel like that's where we're at that that has us stepping back away from opportunities if we don't see that alignment. That that alignment point, and also Tim, your point of discipline and kind of covenants that that sets up kind of the the, the way we'll land the, the aircraft here. Uh, and by the way, the multiple target syndrome. Just uh, my father was a pilot. That's used by Air Force pilots all the time, and it is a real thing. Everything's a target, right? Uh, you you get to a point here where you see there's a significant amount of uh, of capital that's coming into this space that we know. And then the next slide. What you find is that the covenant light structures, right? You know, the covenant light structures uh, have begun, you know, again, to pr pr uh, proliferate in the middle market itself. And so you start to get to a point where folks are going, you know, Ian, covenants are kind of antiquated, man. Now that runs directly contra to what Tim had just said stay disciplined, give up yield, enhance structure, and diversify. Uh, uh, but 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 what will happen is the siren call of asset manager growth that's misaligned, which was Daryl's point, can get someone to look at a, a deal with no covenants and go, you know what, maybe it's maybe it's worth it for me to make that investment. So do covenants still matter? Right? Things have happened. Things have outperformed. We haven't had material losses. And more importantly, if you're the only one looking for covenants when no one else is. How do you balance the fact of what that does to an asset management or, or you know, a, 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 a lending business that that's awfully you know very important to to generate deal flow? So, uh, John, I hope you're not calling me antiquated. <laughs> no, 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 I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Okay. In fact, no, you're the doc. You're the doc Brown. You're doc Brown. All right. Okay. Good. I'm glad we got that set. So here's here's the thing: covenants matter, and managers that promote that they aren't necessarily. Well, I'd like to see how many times they've managed a book during a typical economic cycle. 
I mean, you cannot look at COVID and how quickly we had that recovery and all the support from the fiscal, uh, from the Fed and, and the fiscal government uh, to, to create a, even though it wasn't a full recovery, a lot of liquidity. And like I said, rising uh, tides float all boats. Covenants matter because they allow us in the middle market to restructure a deal, hopefully at a time when our loan is still within the enterprise value. Without those covenants, the only time you have a seat at the table is when the company has a liquidity crisis. And at that point, your options are, are extremely limited. And again, we're talking about smaller businesses. We're not talking about large corporate uh, companies. Um, and also, if, you're the, if it's a traditional structure and you're in the senior spot, uh, covenants actually give you a lot of leverage on the, on the junior capital for them to be part of the uh, solution. Um, and, and for those that point to the great financial recession as, uh, as a benchmark, I, I, would, I would say two things. One, only 35 to 40 percent of the large liquid market was covenant like back then. And almost no deals under 75 million of EBITDA were cub light. So the argument that covenants don't matter has actually not been proven out. And I don't think, like I said, COVID is going to be necessarily a, a good benchmark. Um, and, and the other point uh, to your question is, you know, if you can focus on reputable sponsors somehow offsetting the need for covenants. Well, yeah, we all want to work with and we underwrite the sponsors that we, we work with. And you want the right sponsor at the helm. You want to make sure that they're supporting their companies, they're creating value. And if the company gets in trouble, they're doing the right stuff. But you also want that sponsor when they're out of the money to give you the keys. You don't want them to be fighting and trying to, you know, get some home run out of a deal where uh, it's actually hurting our ability to get our recovery. You need them to step out of the way. So, there, yes, we have alignment initially, but at some point, if the performance deteriorates, we have actually very different fiduciary responsibilities. And, and so... My view is covenants matter. If, if, if the middle market goes to a cub light environment, then I think we're all going to have to relook at the, uh, the probability of default loss given default ratios that we've seen historically. That's that makes complete sense. That's what we'll what we'll do is let's have our LPs, you know, as a as a final uh, a final way we'll try to we'll land uh, uh, land this discussion because this is a question I'm seeing a couple come through here. Um, so you know, Steve, Tim, Jeff, Daryl. All right. After all we've heard today, right? Over the next three to five years, uh, three, five, seven. Let's just pick five. We'll do the midpoint. Do you believe that private credit will outperform public credit? Why? If yes, why? Or why not? Steve, we can start with you. Yeah, uh, thanks, John. Um, so the answer is yes, almost definitely uh, yes. Uh, and so the, ma the math is pretty simple. So um, let, let's take apples to apples, uh, un unlevered, okay, uh, unlevered investment. So um, take the yield minus, uh, expected uh, loss ratio minus uh, fees or our expected return on private debt it, uh, direct le direct lending is about six and a half percent okay that uh, our expected return on uh, uh, levered loans or high yield bonds you know 
There are some differences, obviously, there. Net of fees is probably about three and a half percent. So uh, our forecast, uh, uh, you know, unlevered is a, a three percent uh, uh, premium to uh, to private debt. So yes, what Steve said. Um, the the what what I would add to that is my colleague Cliff Noreen has has argued uh, really all year. Uh, and I'll focus specifically on uh, middle market lending, direct direct lending in the middle market. Uh, we'd rather we'd rather own that because we think there's a, actually a possibility it could even outperform private equity. Forget public corporate credit. Um, it, it certainly has less downside uh, risk. But given where valuations are and the outlook going forward, we'd rather own middle market uh, middle market loans than than uh, commit a lot of fresh capital to private equity. Uh, Tim, I, I, as somebody with a large private equity portfolio, I certainly hope that you're wrong, but uh, I, I see your point. Uh, I, I think private credit uh, is the winner. Um, the case for listed credit is extremely weak for reasons I think Daryl very eff effectively outlined. Liquid markets have historically poor spread, uh, you know, little to no covenant protection, uh, which gives them, you think about the distribution of outcomes, gives them a much greater potential for more severe left tail outcomes. Uh, and in the case of high yield, there, obviously there's some duration there. It's hard for me to believe that that duration is going to be a positive uh, on a forward looking basis. So that, that's those are my reasons. And it's kind of strange. They don't really have as much to do with private credit as they do listed credit. With public. Makes sense. And then, you know, Daryl, uh, to wrap us up. Yeah. So just quickly, I would say I'd agree with the whole panel. Um, absolutely outperforming uh, certainly public market uh, options for reasons. Uh, handsome illiquidity premiums today. Um, what was just said, right? You've got a floating rate structure in most cases that protects your duration exposure if rates do go higher. We think you're still in early cycle dynamics of the recovery cycle uh, post-recession bear market. And then coming back to negative real rates in the public markets, which are just investors should not stand for negative 60 to 80 basis points real rates over a long period of time. And you don't get that in, pub, in private debt. Greatly appreciate the time. And, and, you know, ladies and gentlemen that have joined us from all over the world, it was a pleasure to host these distinguished panelists. We've, we hope you found it insightful. And so with that, we'll uh, log off, but want to thank each of you, the panelists individually. Thank you much for your time, your perspective, and your cinematic knowledge. Thanks for listening to episode number eight of season four of Streaming Income. Remember to follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you are the first to hear about our latest episodes. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.